We really need to pay attention to what our kids are doing. Uh, we're in a digital age, right? And the boogeyman doesn't come through the door. He comes through the internet. Introducing the Protectors. Inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI. Leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mike Carroll and International VP Mark Solomon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Carroll, International President of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am at the Gaylord Hotel in beautiful National Harbor, Maryland. I am with Mark Solomon, our International Vice President. How are you doing, Mark? Mr. President, I'm doing great. We've had uh, a great conference so far. We're on day three already, and uh, speakers have been absolutely phenomenal. So much information, intelligence sharing, collaboration, partnership. Uh, just love it. I wish the week didn't have to end. Exactly. And we've had some great speakers and presenters this week. Mark, we have two right here today. We do. And not only are they two great presenters, they're two great people. Uh, these folks are just awesome. So I'd like to introduce them on the podcast here. First, we have Detective Joe Scaramucci. He's with the McLennan County Sheriff's Department in Texas, in the great state of Texas. And believe it or not, he's wearing headphones and a, and a cowboy hat. You know, he had to keep that on there one way or the other. And then secondly, we have uh, Rochelle Cahan. She is CEO of Collective Liberty, which is a national anti-trafficking organization. She's also the 2018 Thompson Reuters Foundation Stop Slavery Hero Award winner. So welcome to our show, folks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. We're so glad to be here. Hey, Rochelle, I'd like to start out by asking you a question. For our audience that doesn't know, can you tell us what is human trafficking? Absolutely. So it depends on who's asking this question, uh, the type of nuance that you need in that answer. But generally, what human trafficking is, is when someone is forced, defrauded, or coerced into engaging in either commercial sex, which is sex for money, or forced labor, where they're not paid. So that varies in so many degrees and nuances, and it's hard to always identify it, but that's the general answer to that question. Yeah, and it just kind of depends, too, what part of the world you're in, right? So Totally. The laws. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, some countries require you to be transported across the border. Um, others don't. In the U.S., you don't have to. Um, Child-forced military labor is not something we're going to see in the U.S., mm -hmm. but you routinely see it in other countries. So it really yeah. just depends on where you're at. And the labor protections that exist. Yeah. To go along with that, what do you think is the most common misconceptions surrounding human trafficking? Oh, for me, it's the whole Taken theory, right? Um, everybody sees the movie Taken. They think people are kidnapped. I routinely get calls. Uh, I saw this guy. He was staring at my kid. Okay. You know, you see the, the zip tie thing. There's zip ties on, on a car door, which means it's person's being marked for human trafficking. It's absolute nonsense. Um, those kind of things do not happen. Uh, the notion that there's kidnappings going on and people are being forced into trafficking, there's really no solid statistic, but what you generally hear is it's less than 0.5% of all human trafficking involves that. I At think. least in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. I've had 270, more than 275 trafficking victims we've encountered, and only one was potentially could say that she was kidnapped. Not a single other one. So you're tending to see that they're being defrauded into it or misled into it. Uh, maybe they have some problems with addictions or, or something like that. Is it more of a situation like that? Or yeah, I think for, for sex trafficking, it's generally much more coercive um, than it is uh, even defrauding. It's the boyfriend. It's the person who can manipulate somebody who 
needs help. So somebody who's financially, in, you know, unstable, that the trafficker comes along and, you know, provides, you know, hey, we'll have a better future together. You know, we can we can do this, we can do that. All the wonderful things we'll have that never actually happen. That's part of why I hedged on my first answer on defining it is we're so often focused on finding the victims of trafficking and it prevents us from conceiving it accurately. And the shift in approach of interpreting the statutes and really applying what trafficking means all over the world is to focus on what actions the traffickers are taking. So, for example, did they recruit someone? Are they the muscle that's beating them up and punishing them? Did they defraud them? Are they the one denying them the wages, making the threats, et cetera? What actions are they taking? By which means, and then you think about force, fraud, or coercion, and it takes that overwhelming pressure off of, unless we find force, unless you're black and blue and chained in a basement somewhere, it's not trafficking. Because no, that's one of many factors that we're looking for here, but we got to focus on the trafficker. And the overwhelming majority are defrauding their victims. That's the primary means of recruitment and control. And then if the fraud stops working and the victim starts, you know, standing up, then we start with the coercion and locking them back into place. And you're going to get caught, right? And so they're not that stupid. Many, many are abusive and violent. And I'm not saying that's not true, but fraud and coercion are a lot harder to find. Another misconception we see quite a bit. Uh, we work with thousands of investigators all over the country and we work internationally with some of our partners. And the biggest misconception we see is people expect a victim to run out and be like, oh my gosh, please help me. I'm being abused. Please, please help me. I'm a victim of human trafficking. I haven't met a single victim in the thousands of cases that I worked that at the time that they were identified knew what human trafficking really even was, right? It's not their job to know this legal statute, how it applies to them and what they're experiencing. It's ours. And so expecting that, it, it's a huge misconception that I think leaves so many victims behind. To go along with what you said at the roundtable discussion here at the conference, some of those that get involved in this come from a place where it was worse there than it is in the States. Is that correct? Absolutely. We were talking about, so for example, when victims are recruited from other countries or they come here for other countries looking for better opportunity, often they're leaving something pretty terrible or they were already being trafficked in that other country. And as Joe was talking about before, the rights and protections aren't the same everywhere. So they're not going to assume, okay, I've gone to this other country where I don't know the culture. My rights are better there. They're going to assume they're equivalent or worse, right? And so they're not necessarily advocating for themselves and they're even more vulnerable as a result. I think something to add to that real quick too is is what does the law enforcement look like in the home country, right? So right. why should I come to law enforcement when you're going to rob me and beat me for being a victim? Um, they don't know necessarily what it's like here. We were in another country working operations and we we're just watching the police beat people and, you know, the guy needed it and I wish I could have done it too, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Here it doesn't work that way, and it, right. it kind of, you know, it, it definitely creates a buffer as well. And Joe and Rochelle, um, how prevalent is it here in the United States? Uh, you know, probably the normal person, the normal citizen doesn't realize how widespread this problem is, how many people are affected, how many uh, victims and survivors that are out there. Can you talk a little bit from your experiences about that? 
Let me start and then you, so I have a quick answer. In, uh, we're collecting data from all over the country. We're building out Intel packets and we're also following trafficking activity. And what we see is it is pretty equivalent per capita all over the nation, but we don't necessarily have a hard number on like, this is the exact number per capita of what's happening, but the trafficking activity and the recruitment of and exploitation of victims. Um, we've helped with some small towns in the Pacific Northwest. They're like, well, we only have X number here. But then I'm like, well, when we compare that number to the number in New York, it seems a lot less. But per capita, you happen to have 10% more than New York. So I would say we don't have the hard numbers, but it's pretty equivalent across the country and no community is immune. Yeah, I think um, just to add to that and, and kind of reiterate what Rochelle said, there's no numbers. If, if people are giving you numbers, they're probably extrapolated nonsense. Um, one of the most common is like the heat map of calls into the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And people will say, well, look at look at uh, Atlanta, for instance. It's, it's dark red. Houston's dark red. Uh, they're, they're trafficking hubs. There's no such thing as a trafficking hub. When you look at per capita, we could do the same thing with heroin, right? We can heat map heroin. It's going to be darker red in Atlanta than it is in Rock Springs, Wyoming. So it's it's... It really is just the numbers are hard to come. It's by. hard, to, hard yeah. to say definitively. Yeah. Well, I wonder there's some national numbers that people might hear and people might be curious about. Some of them are outdated, right, that we've leaned on. And maybe it's worth talking if you see some of these numbers. It's not because people are deliberately misrepresenting, but they're extrapolations and they're not necessarily accurate. Yeah. And I think in the anti-trafficking movement, you know, we, we take information that we know from uh, I, I just rewrote the, our state curriculum and it was information from like 2008. You know, we're, we're, look, we're using numbers and data from 2008. The states um, didn't even have their own state statutes in 2008. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, mm-hmm. you know, where a lot of this comes from. And, and most of it uh, is just not good at all. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe and Rochelle, I wanted to ask you, maybe more to you, Joe, being from Texas. I remember about six months ago, there was uh, in the national news, a girl went to the restroom and at a football game and then she ended up missing and then turning up in another state maybe what you mentioned before Rochelle is that kind of uncommon though it's it doesn't seem like that's a happens a lot but just something that's very uncommon um so that was at the American Airlines Center there in Dallas at a, a Mavericks game actually okay um I can tell you that with what I know about it as with most trafficking especially of children there was pre-existing relationships exactly it's Hey, we meet on Instagram. We talk. You're cute. You're pretty. I know your dad's a jerk. We can do this. We can do that. Oh, you're going to be here on Saturday. Guess where I'll be? And then, you know, we go from there. Leave with me, not I'm kidnapping you. You yeah. know, I've built that relationship. Yeah, yeah. that is 99.9% of how that occurs. And in that particular scenario, um, I would say the majority of the pimp controlled trafficking cases, that's what we mean by fraud. The guy is defrauding her, filling, or him, the, the victim, filling a need, an emotional gap, an emotional relationship is being built, and that is used to defraud them and then to coerce them. Like, right. if you loved me, you would X, Y, Z. And it's one-sided because he doesn't care, right? But she does. And I think it's fair to say that even though they might go voluntarily with this person or believe this story, they're still a victim of a crime here. I mean, they're, they're being put into a situation that they were lied about, um, and then they're being forced into activity and, and stuff that 
you know, they didn't, weren't planning on, on doing. And whether it's sexual, um, the, the sex industry, or if it's labor industry, you know, so defrauding is a part, it seems like more common than we think when it comes to victims of human trafficking. Yeah, I think, um, and it brings up a good point. That's one of the biggest battles we fight with law enforcement and prosecutors because you look at surface level and you say, she's choosing to be here. Right. Yeah, but if we only have two choices, A, you know, what do we do? But then B, you really have to understand the psychology of it all because it appears that they want to be, and they'll tell you, I'm choosing to be here. This is what I want to do. But when you really start looking at everything long term, you can unravel mm. how that is. And it's, it's hard to look at somebody and say, you are a victim when they say, no, I'm not. You know, it makes it difficult. And that's the misconception that I'm talking about. It's not their job to identify themselves as a victim, right? So we're supposed to look at the whole picture yep. and see for them and keep them safe and protect them. And it's a big gap right now that Joe and I do a lot of training to try to help with. But I think if people are familiar with the domestic violence phenomena and how you slowly just start accepting things, it doesn't mean you're choosing it. It means like, okay, I might die or I might get, you know, beaten unconscious or I can just do this thing. And some false choices that don't actually really count as a choice. I almost think uh, when you think of um, a victim, a child abuse, of sexual abuse, these children are groomed uh, for this crime. And it almost sounds like there's a comparison here for the uh, trafficking victim that they're actually being groomed into this activity. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, very much so. The flip side is the amount of, of sex trafficking victims who have prior child sexual abuse in their history. Some will tell you, I didn't get to make that decision with, you know, Uncle Touchy, but at least now I make a decision as to whether or not, and granted they, they're not, but, right. it, you know, they believe I make a decision as to whether I'm doing this. So I have some sort of, of power and authority and, you know, it's, you can almost, I can't even tell you how many traffic, sex trafficking victims you can ask about the, the prior history and there's mm-hmm. child sexual abuse. Yeah. Many first people's trafficker was their mom, their dad, their uncle, or their cousin. And that's another misconception. We think it's strangers, a large percentage. I would hazard to say the majority, the first person that did it to them is their family. And there's famous examples of that, of child movie stars. Even if you read Demi Moore's um, autobiography, even she says, my mom pimps me at bars, look at Brooke Shields. Like it's a common thing and we just don't look at it. And then if the person responsible for setting up your entire worldview and what sounds safe and who's supposed to be safe does this for you, yeah, it's 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 a mess right now. And we can't look at the victims to pull themselves out of it is what I would say. One thing you also mentioned at your presentation or roundtable presentation was trafficking occurring at major sporting events like the Super Bowl. And I was going to ask you, with your company, your organization, do you do a lot of training to law enforcement on what to look for at these type of events? Absolutely. So we provide live intel support during Super Bowl and other major sporting events to help them build out cases. We also track the data every year around human trafficking at different sporting events. And one thing that's interesting to know is while it's not like brand new pimps pop up, at a Super Bowl and brand new victims are being victimized, sometimes you can see that people are traveling to where they think a new influx of buyers might be, or people are traveling because they're like, well, I'll make you work while I get to go to the Super Bowl and you'll just make the money for the trip or whatever. But we have seen, depending on the market, an increase in the 
number of ads and the number of recruitments and sometimes not. For example, in Atlanta, they have a pretty active like conference scene and a lot of people coming into town. So we didn't see a dramatic increase, but all year round there's that increase. So the pimps are going all around. So it's interesting. Yes. And we work these cases and it's always good to make sure that the demand doesn't increase so that then the number of times a woman is exploited isn't dramatically increasing. So that's another huge push as well. And Joe has a face right now. This is where I'm going to throw a rock at the cops. <laughs> no, no. Anti-trafficking efforts surrounding the Super Bowl and big sporting events cause more damage than good. Okay. As an example, you take the Super Bowl in uh, L.A. If hypothetically you FOIA'd the names of all the people arrested, what you would find of 500 trafficking arrests, 460 are women for prostitution. That's, that's horrible. And we did provide intel support on two pimping networks that didn't net results. Yeah, so it, it really depends on what's going on. We just did operations at World Games here in uh, July with uh, HSI there. And um, phenomenal. Not a single girl goes to jail for prostitution. These traffickers are going to jail. The guys showing up to have sex with kids are going to jail. Um, but that's very, very unique. Most of the anti-trafficking efforts, in my opinion, can be very harmful. And in Tampa, we worked with the official task force and there was a small local group, the official task force. We did quite a few trafficking based arrests that happened throughout that week and following weeks. And then the small task force that wasn't involved in the intel and data driven one arrested quite a few women and potential victims. So the approach really does matter. And it does it does matter what agency, right? That's I'm pretty particular about who we work with even as law enforcement, because the the one in Tampa, um, we did some really great work with HSI there, really great work. But surrounding locals made the news because they get all these arrests. The problem is the arrests are just garbage, you know. Mm, um, they're not impactful. Yeah, they're not impactful. We're, we're, we're really arresting more of the victims uh, of this human trafficking than going after the orchestrators. So let me uh, switch topics here for our, for our general audience here. Uh, we've spent the past uh, week here talking about identifying various types of financial crimes, fraud, cyber crimes. What type of private sector professions might be able to see something where they say, hey, there's something going on here. And what what type of professions do you typically see that have the best visibility into human trafficking? And then what do they do? Where do they report it? So for me, I think the, the number one private sector, in my opinion, is going to be a medical field. Okay. Um, whether the, the trafficking victim is assaulted by trafficker, uh, primarily they're assaulted by the buyers, whatever medical need that they may have, uh, that intersect. I think there's a statistic out there that says something like more than 80% of survivors say that they had been in medical for something related to the trafficking that they could have been identified. So I, I think that's probably the, the largest intersect that, that I'm seeing at least. I would say... I would completely agree with that. And when we're talking about minors, school counselors and people paying attention to truancy really do have a lot of insight. And if they could be trained and there could be a better system, we could potentially identify people, especially at risk before they're fully trafficked. And then Uber and Lyft is used very heavily because it obscures the trafficker. And we've seen it in both pimping and massage parlor and sometimes even labor trafficking transportation to and from transit stations because it's semi-controlled, it's GPS tracked, but then the trafficker's two steps removed. 
And then lastly, hotels, they can have a lot of visibility. The frontline workers can have a lot of visibility and be documenting and sharing information. I think what's tough is with labor trafficking, it can be difficult, um, but I think people paying attention to any third-party recruiters used to hire and monitor or supervise any of the staff, that's a huge red flag that the corporate staff can be paying attention to. But labor trafficking is a little bit more isolated, so there's less visible other industries, I would say. Rochelle, let me ask you this question, or even Joe, too. I belonged to this church group and I became a coach, like a basketball coach for the kids. And you had to take this test through the state to how to identify child abuse. Is that something that your company offers and how to identify something like that so we could get the word out to the public what to look for? Absolutely. And we partner with some amazing organizations. Um, I know one of our favorite, Unbound, does a lot of this type of community-based education. So we do and we partner with agencies. So if they happen to be on the ground and local to where the request is coming from, we always try to elevate those local orgs first and then we'll be a stopgap in between. But that's definitely the perfect thing that people, especially if you're involved in the community, involved with children, involved with extracurricular identifying even child abuse, emotional abuse, domestic abuse will help you identify trafficking, but also having some of those trafficking red flags will be super helpful. She got it all. <laughs> I got nothing. Wow. wow she not happen often. Wait, double vouch for Unbound. Vouch for Unbound, yeah. They, uh, their primary office is in, in Waco, Texas, but they are international, so they, but they do a ton of um, public. You know. They train tens of thousands of educators, yeah. yeah. Well, Joel, let me ask you this question, being in law enforcement. I mean, I know this is a hot topic. Um, do you see an increase in human trafficking with illegal immigration into our country? I love this question, especially being from Texas. No. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting. You know, a lot of politicians like playing the, the human trafficking is just going ballistic. You know, it's crazy. Uh, no, now I'm not saying we don't have a smuggling issue because clearly we do. But smuggling and trafficking are not the same by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty interesting. She and I were doing some trainings in uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. And I don't know if you remember when we were posting ads in Laredo and advertising that we were selling kids, not a single person was like, oh, I want the kid. They were cussing me via text. They were just blasting me. Like, how us. dare you? Whereas the rest of the country is like, yep. Go to Beaumont, 40% are showing up for a kid. What I think long term. That was the only time that ever happened was at the border of Texas and Mexico where the buyers were like, absolutely not. How dare you? Yeah. Um, long term, I'm, I'm curious to see what is going to happen when you have an at risk population undocumented and in, in financial turmoil being exploited for labor trafficking. I think that that's going to be in the next several years where we're really seeing the trafficking from the border manifest. And for immigration, too, I want to flag a lot of the victims that we see in massage parlor trafficking cases, the victims are undocumented and the trafficker has achieved legal documentation status here. So the exploitation is not necessarily being driven by it's the exploited that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the indicators? And I know this it depends on, on the type of trafficking, I'm sure. But what are some of the indicators that our public might see or detect if there is either sexual trafficking going on, labor trafficking, or child uh, trafficking? What, what are some of the indicators? That is a question that comes up a lot. You know, um, when I, you know, when we teach, I tell people, I'm going to traffic different than you are. You're going to traffic different than you. You know, we're all going to have our nuance or different things. The biggest indicator, I know this sounds really trivial, but involvement in commercial sex would 
be a huge red flag. Um, that could even be, you know, things like working at strip clubs, you know, um, any kind of sexually oriented business. When we're talking about children, you know, kids running around with burner phones, there's no reason for that. Kids that are truant all the time, we don't know where they are. Where are you during the day? You know, if, if, if you have kids that are showing up with um, men's name tattooed or men's street name tattooed on them or something like that would be a pretty solid indicator. A crown. Yeah, crown tattoos are uh, huge. But when we say look for A, B, C, D, E. It's not that simple. It's not that yeah. simple. It's very yeah. hard. It's such a hidden crime. I almost think I almost when you look at a domestic violence victim, you know, and maybe fear, hesitation, uh, maybe there's signs of physical injury. You know, I'm assuming probably some similar patterns there. There are. Um, it's it's difficult, though. So as an example, I know the hotel staff, for instance, is very routinely taught um, if you have a female that's not making eye contact and the man is making the decisions. Is it trafficking? Is she just right, right. in a bad mood? Is is it domestic violence? Right. You know, it could be any number of anxiety. horrible things. Yeah, yeah. Anxiety. social anxiety. Yeah. So it's it's just very very difficult, you know. And and I, I think it's important though for people when they see something that makes the hair on the back of their neck stand up. This doesn't seem right to document what they can and report it because there's a reason you're having that feeling. Mm -hmm. And it may, it may be that it is DV or it is right. somebody who's sexually abused. And, and hopefully we can get them out of that situation. It doesn't always have to be trafficking. Right. It could be another crime going yeah. on. And I think, too, the, the good thing to point out to our listeners is there are laws to protect people that report suspicion of domestic violence or human trafficking. So, listen, you know, these are difficult things for anyone to have to go through trafficking, uh, domestic violence. We want to help those victims, no matter what they're going through. There are laws out there to protect people as long as you're reporting it uh, under good intentions and you believe that you know, there might be some criminal activity. Um, you know, people can't go after you for that, you know. Yeah. One thing I like to point out to people, too, because one of the things you hear, especially if we do a raid, oh, I, I, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Why didn't you call? Right. Yeah. You know, right. Why didn't want to be wrong? Right. I would rather you be wrong 10 times and right once. Yeah. That one time could save somebody's life, you know, so. And as a domestic violence prosecutor, I would say like 90% of my cases were really not necessarily going to lead to a fatality. But had they not called me by the time we got to that one, we would have missed it. So it is really important. Yeah. And I want to also flag that often a trafficking survivor is going to present the opposite of what you would expect. Like the scared and timid. No, they've lived. They've lived more than almost any of us have. And they're usually tough and they're going to fight for themselves and they're not going to trust you because you haven't helped them yet and no one's helped them yet and they've kept themselves alive and they've helped themselves and so they're going to be tough and if you expect them to not be then you're going to miss them you know trauma manifests in a way she's like no one gives a you know cuss word about me i i give a cuss word about myself and so go pound sand like i don't have time for you and we have to have empathy to see through that i have a real close friend of mine that's a trafficking survivor that uh I've at times had to, to tell law enforcement before she comes in to present, like, hey, <laughs> be ready. Because <laughs> hey, you got, you know, guys that have been doing narc for like 10, 15 years that are looking at her like, oh, my God, because she's intense. You know, every, the sweetest human being, but, man, <laughs> she, she'll scare the shit out of you. you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not the movie Taken. No. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Joe and Rochelle, a lot of great information today. We really appreciate it. If we could just leave with our listeners, what would be something that you could recommend to them that they can do to help if they see something relating to human trafficking or what they should do? I think the number one thing I would recommend is pay attention. If we're talking about sex trafficking, pay attention to what your kids are doing on the internet. Make sure you have that awkward conversation with them and make sure that they're not befriending people that are, you know, catfishing them and it's really an old guy that they end up with that ends up abusing them and slippery slope them into something. And make sure that their emotional needs are met and also pay attention to their friends and make sure that if you see change behavior in their friends that there's someone looking out for them and pay attention to things. And as Joe said, just call it in if it feels not right. Yeah, I think to add to that, we really need to pay attention to what our kids are doing. Uh, we're in a digital age, right? And the boogeyman doesn't come through the door. He comes through the internet. So really looking at what our sense of security is, and generally it's the locked door at our house at 2 a.m., um, but that's when these kids are on their phones, you know, being groomed and talk to these these degenerate losers. The other one being definitely notify local law enforcement. I think... Um, the best response, the fastest response is always going to be local law enforcement. Yeah. Some great advice. And, and before we go, uh, one one quick question. Um, we so love Collective Liberty and you guys for being here at our conference. How can our listeners support your guys' cause? Uh, how would they get a hold of you? Can you provide us some more information about Collective can Liberty? Can I jump on that one first? Right. Since I don't work there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I would say that for me in law enforcement, we lean very heavily on Rochelle's organization for intelligence support. Um, and I know a lot of agencies that do. So when we are working in operation, she doesn't know this, but I'm about to have to hit her up about one coming up. <laughs> you know, they've got analysts that, that will assist in everything and, and it can all be done from afar. So we're plugging TVs up to, to computers and spilling data and intel as, as we're doing police stuff. So as a non-employee, I would definitely say go to their website donate because it really helps not only them, but that is helping law enforcement put handcuffs on bad people and, and assist trafficking victims um, from, you know, moment of, of identification through prosecution and, and all that. Thank you. Yeah. So if you're in an agency, I really appreciate that, Joe. Um, we're here by and for law enforcement. And if you're in, with an agency that has relevant data to share, message us to the extent that you can enhance what we're already providing. Obviously, that's great. Donations help keep it going, especially in the jurisdictions that don't have big budgets that can't afford to help subsidize the work. You can subsidize it to make sure that even your small county has access. And also, just to throw it out there, we have a billboard up in Times Square right now trying to shift the approach and change the world. So if you join us, we're trying to create the world that we all want to live in. That is awesome. And uh, for our listeners, get out there. Let's help Collective Liberty. Let's uh, stop human trafficking. And like I said, we, we appreciate what you both of you are doing from both the public and private sectors. So we wish you all the best. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you all. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts.
The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.